Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. In April 2021, three months into Myanmar's most recent and increasingly more violent coup d'etat, local residents managed to obstruct the junta by refusing to cooperate with military-appointed officials. The junta had attempted to replace all local-level administrators with those loyal to the military, but in one town in Shan State, the junta-appointed administrators were socially ostracised by the community to the point of resigning. With no one daring to take their place, every ward administrator position in the town went unfilled. Across the country, residents supported each other and striking civil servants by setting up donations of basic foodstuffs such as rice, oil and onions. From small roadside tables to large-scale donations for thousands of households, residents organised bags of food under signs marked Donate if you have extra, take if you have need. Our guest today argues that these locally initiated direct actions are part and parcel of the ordinary practices of everyday life in Myanmar. To share more about these practices, or Nalemu, I am joined by Dr. Jade Lynn Roberts, a senior lecturer in the School of Built Environment at UNSW Sydney and an interdisciplinary scholar of urban studies and Southeast Asian studies. Her research on Myanmar focuses on informal urbanism, heritage making and the influence of transnational networks. Jade's monograph, Mapping Chinese Rangoon, Place and Nation Among the Sino-Burmese, was published by the University of Washington Press in 2016, and she was a Fulbright U.S. scholar in Yangon, Myanmar, between 2016 and 2018. Jade, thank you so much for joining us on SEAC Stories. Can you share with us what was taking place in Myanmar from 2011 onwards in terms of the presence of international donors and Myanmar's entry into the global financial system? So for those of us in Myanmar studies, what happened in 2011 was a happy surprise, wherein prior to that, Myanmar was really off the map of both scholarly research and public attention. Once the military decided that it would march itself towards a disciplined democracy and former generals decided that they would become civilians so that they could be elected as presidents, for example, the world came back to assist because indeed many different organizations, including the UN and World Health Organization, had wanted to help, but the junta had made it difficult. So it was a very quick change and aid organizations came in wanting to pick the low-hanging fruit and how you can make a difference very quickly. So those circumstances meant that the rules and regulations of aid and the necessity to be accountable made the actions really fast. And with Myanmar being off the map, there wasn't a lot of research about the country that consultants and specialists could go to. And so it was sort of like everybody had to do research while they were creating new systems and, you know, theory of change and how to implement it. So it went all too quickly, in my opinion, and in the opinions of other specialists who've been looking at the country prior to 2011. Specialists or consultants asked the government and the local officials to formalize, to increase transparency, 
to write down rules and regulations that would be published. But those were often done without sufficient understanding of how things actually work. And this article that I've co-written with a fellow scholar, Elizabeth Rhodes, who's now in Sweden, because we'd been looking at how people actually conduct themselves in their everyday lives, we want to write this and say, well, hey, it's a good idea to assist and to support, but maybe we should take some more time to really understand how things work before we propose solutions. So that's the impetus for this article. Okay. So thinking about this period and I guess pressure from the international community to embrace formal institutions, to think about good governance, to be part of the global financial system, were these applied evenly in Myanmar across geographic and religious and ethnic differences or was it a bit patchier than that? There's been a long discussion of need to have a federalist system wherein the different ethnic nationalities or also known as ethnic groups, such as the Shan, Kachin, Gaya, Giyin, you know, there are eight major groups and then lots of smaller groups. These groups have not necessarily seen themselves as aligned to the central Burman state and the constitution of the Union of Myanmar has contested repeatedly throughout its history, at least since independence. So when international donors arrived and wanted to promote the welfare, the health, you know, economic development, all of those really good aspirations, there wasn't enough understanding of how things are sort of stitched together in the country. There were efforts to work with the government in Nebidal, the union, and also smaller initiatives at the various levels, like some people worked in Guya or some people worked in Dewey to try and work with the local government, all the way down to the level of the ward. But because there just wasn't enough information, people just had to do their best and and oftentimes not understand that certain actions at different levels might lead to making groups more vulnerable because they're made more legible to the state or local level initiatives might just fizzle out because it can't travel back up. So the network quality of how things actually work in Myanmar weren't recognized. That's really very clear. And you're talking about this increased vulnerability as these actors enter the international system or or sort of come under the influence of other international actors. Are we talking specifically about activists and civil society here? Yeah. If we look at the situation now, so the coup happened in February of this year. And there are organizations, local civil society organizations and non-governmental organizations that decided to register, partly because they were compelled to register by international NGOs, right? In order for INGOs to provide funds, there needs to be a clear way to track how the money goes and what's being done. And so... In the name of transparency and accountability, local organizations are asked to register with the union government or at the various levels of the state or the city. And that made them visible to the state so that after the coup, 
we need to do more research. This is the observation that Elizabeth and I are bringing forward, and we certainly will continue to observe to see how legibility was used by the state. But it looks like bank accounts are frozen. Various measures were taken by the junta because they could see who was operating. I think it's a really good example of this idea of how development can be a form of violence, even though it's predicated on benevolent intentions, it can expose or bring into the light certain actors would prefer to stay out of the state's view. So let's talk a little bit about this. You suggest in this article that these reforms with their focus on transparency and accountability have actually replaced a social support mutual aid system of relational practices. Can you explain what these relational practices are and how they work? So there are several parts to this. I'll go bit by bit. So the word nalemu can be translated as understanding. So it's an understanding of a situation or the understanding between people or two different sides. And it's also to do something based on the understanding. So that means at the everyday level of tactics, then it's I know you, you know me, we've had a long-term relationship. It might not be a happy relationship. Maybe we're neighbors on the same street. We know each other. And through our long-term engagement with each other, we know how things work. And when natural disasters happen or when the coup d'etat happens, then we know what to do for each other and we can do it implicitly. And this kind of long-term interaction has enabled the people in Myanmar and in other places like in the Middle East through Asif Bayat's work about quiet encroachment and social non-movement. These actions create a social safety net because the state has not created. And with Nalemu, because it's a system of relationships between people or groups of people, they are holding each other accountable. So if I don't do things that my street expects me to do, or I don't support the Buddhist organization as a fellow Buddhist organization, the censure that I will experience from others will hold me in line. So there are conservative aspects to it that could become problematic, but because it's negotiated between people and between groups, that's a form of accountability, a form of checks and balances. And is this what distinguishes it from, you know, there might be accusations that this is just simply corruption. Is this element of mutual accountability what distinguishes it from corruption? Thankfully, other scholars have written about this in other places. So when I first started thinking about it, I was like, well, this is a lot like guanxi in Chinese culture. And guanxi has long been accused of as a form of corruption or where, you know, I can hire my son because... I can, because it's a relationship. But it's too simple of a gloss for both guanxi and nalemu and what Bayat writes about, because you can counter it. It can be labeled as corrupt if you say, well, we must have legally written documents that state what the rules and regulations are, and everything is then checked against the written code. But in places like Myanmar, contracts are not trusted. Contracts are a form of state legibility. So you wouldn't be able to say that some kind of transaction is corrupt just because it doesn't follow the rules. And, and the laws in Myanmar have been 
very vulnerable. The state can just say, well, no, now we're going to apply this law in this way and you have no recourse. Those of us thinking through these everyday ways of working with each other are always pushing back against this label of corruption. Because at a high level, at the level of the UN or, you know, from a great distance, it can look corrupt. But if you look down low at the grassroots level and you see who's involved and what kinds of negotiations are involved, it's much more difficult to paint it in such black and white terms. Yes, I really like what you and your collaborator, Elizabeth Rhodes, say about how labeling these practices as corrupt does a disservice to the cultural and social embeddedness of these structures as a form of moral economy. Yeah, and that oftentimes when we rely on state-sanctioned laws or rules, we forget that the marginalized often remain marginalized. So I focused on the Dio in my PhD research. So they are a marginalized population. They're the Sino-Burmese. And Elizabeth looked a lot at the Muslim population. And for both of these groups, and this is a big sort of lumping together of very diverse groups of people, because for my research in the Dio, there are at least four different groups, subgroups within that. But on the whole, for these non-central Burman ethnic groups, they're seen as foreigners. They have no legal rights oftentimes. And so the rules and regulations don't protect them any more than the current situation or current system of Nalemu. And one of the ways you describe Nalemu is that it is hidden in plain sight. So is it through your research and through Elizabeth's research on the Muslim communities, you sort of became aware of these um, social structures? Yeah, so my field work, so I undertook a spatial ethnography. So I lived there and conducted what we call deep hanging out. And it was interesting. I know it sounds so funny. Te- is that a technical term? <laughs> At least in the US, you know, we joke that what we do is deep hanging out because you're there to carefully observe and to not judge too quickly what you are seeing or what you're in the midst of. And so because I was sitting in temples with the temple committees, the Dio temple committees, or I would hang out with people in their shops, I noticed that what's going on here, you know, like I offered to help with some projects and being very American, I was like, okay, let's write down everything that we need to do. And then I will sign my name and I will say that I will deliver, <laughs> right? They were like, no, 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 no. We don't sign things. So I was like, oh, why not? How do you make sure I do what I say I'm going to do? So it was through interactions like that where I realized the implicit is powerful and it's not any less effective or good. You know, I had some judgments as an American going in there. So through that kind of reflection, and Izzy has similar stories, we realized that there's something here and people are using this word nalemu. And what does this nalemu mean? And so we kept paying attention and listening to how people actually work together, how they help each other. Yeah, right. Okay, so we've got changing situation in Myanmar since 2011 with more involvement from international actors and NGOs applying their models of transparency and governance and, you know, their funding approach and these contracts with the signatures that you're just talking about. And we've also got this social infrastructure with Nalemu and mutual aid and accountability. 
What happens when these two systems come into contact with each other? What has happened since 2011 is with the effort to make laws more transparent and more consistent, some of my interlocutors did realize that there's been a change and they felt more able to bring up property issues, for example, in the court. Whereas prior to 2011, they were like, never mind, it's never going to work. You don't know what the judge is going to say. So there was a switch of a sort, just the beginning. But on the whole, people were still transferring property in ways that were implicit because the laws didn't work for quote unquote legal transfers of property. And if people needed to help somebody by giving them some money, the Hundi system was still operational. It is very operational today after the coup d'etat because the banking system is not working. So it's not that transparency has replaced Nalemu in Myanmar. It showed signs of weakening Nalemu, but I think that these informal networks are sustaining people. And so how this might change needs to be observed and I think might lead to an interesting insight for how we operate, not just in the global South, not just in Myanmar, but in countries like the U.S. Because in the U.S., in urban planning scholarship, we've talked about how Americans feel so isolated and there's no sort of social capital that once knitted us together as a society no longer exists. And more recent scholarship has also talked about the social infrastructure, how people actually work together. So the guanxi or the nalemu stays. It just becomes less used and somehow is seen as less developed or less advanced because it's not based on law and transparency. I think it just takes on a different form and is more subtle. So it's not going away, it's changing form. Do you think it's moving into the shadow economy, becoming a place where the excluded hang out? Izzy and I started writing this in 2018, way before the coup. And so we were concerned that it would become explicitly illegal. So the coup has changed the larger context of the social infrastructure. And we want to point out that Nalemu works at multiple levels or scales, you know, at the level of one-to-one, person-to-person, but also groups like community-to-community, and then as a way to access the state. So it is a robust but subtle network or subtle infrastructure. And if we look at scholarship from Indonesia, where people have used a a similar system like Kotoroyang or something like that, where they continue, even as recognized citizens, they will use personal networks to access like benefit that the government is supposed to provide. So the shadow economy part might come true. But right now, one could say most of what's happening in Myanmar is underground and not explicit. So I'd really like to come back to this idea of how Nalemu might influence the state. But before I do that, of course, I appreciate you can't do your deep hanging out in Myanmar at the moment with travel restrictions um, internationally and in Myanmar and But are you able to share some examples with us of how relational practices seen in Nalemu are being revitalised in Myanmar since the coup? 
yeah, definitely. I'm still, every week I have a meeting with four of my, what do I call them? Some were my former students and some are young researchers that I'm working with. And we are talking about what they're doing at their own neighborhood level. You know, if they see that a street vendor needs help, they will tell other people on the street that the street vendor could use some help. And then even larger scale stuff where a couple of days ago they sent me a message saying, you know, there have been some families who have received no help whatsoever and they're very poor and they need food, they need cooking oil. So this person who contacted me raised some funds within her circle of friends and I'm putting in some money and they're going to go deliver it because there are currently some great NGOs working on delivering oxygen concentrators, helping with various things. More official organizations aren't able to see who's being left out. And the students that I'm working with, because it's just their everyday lives, they can pick up on this information and tell us, tell me, tell others, and then we can help in the best way possible. Yeah. So there are all sorts of stuff. Like right now, it's really, really hard to get money into the country because the banking system's not working. So you have to go through several layers. Even if you have money, like in America or here, and you want to donate money, it's like four steps through friends of friends of friends of friends to get that money in the hands of somebody in Yangon. Okay. So I, I wanted to ask you about how Nalemu could be a way of negotiating power in a way that facilitates interaction with the state. Can you tell us what potential there is for Nalemu to shape the way people engage with the junta? I want to preface that by saying, because the system is so agile, that what Izzy and I have observed and written is only a part of the story. I don't want to paint officials as if they're just bad. Because the system has constrained them to a great extent. And some officials who ask for money when you go in and apply for something are in a very difficult situation because they're not being paid enough to actually survive. And this has been known amongst Myanmar researchers, you know, since 2005 when I first started to study Myanmar. Like, let's say you're selling something on the street. And technically, that's not legal right? Because you don't have a permit. So some ward official or some officer might stop you and say, hey, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And me as the market, the street stall person would know to give the official some amount of money and he lets me go. But in terms of how much money in my own research, it wasn't much. It would be like, you know, a dollar. And that you could say, well, that adds up if you have to give it every day. But the people taking the money at that level and the people giving the money have an understanding, have a nalemu that you don't abuse it. You know, everybody's having a hard time. Everybody's suffering. So you do what you can to, to smooth things over. You don't confront each other in the name of ultimate justice or universal justice. So that happens a lot just at the street level. One of the informants told me if... There's a ward level official. We all know who he is. And he walks down in plain clothes, not his uniform, because everybody has uniforms. You know, you just give him a little bit of money. And then when a higher level official is going to come and check the street, he will tell you so that you're not out on the street and you won't, you won't be caught. That's a way of interacting with the state that's relatively benign and 
was actually how street commerce and the economy worked in Yangon for decades. And after 2011, the government went and cleared the streets of street vendors on the major streets. Just everybody was forced to move. Let's say I have one Chinese parent who's my grandfather moved to Myanmar from China somewhere two generations ago. I would be in a precarious situation in terms of the national ID. And my other parent is Burmese, you know, for fully recognized Burmese ethnic minority. That kind of situation makes it that I would have to gain the sympathy of somebody in the system in order to get my ID. And lots of people have done this. So do you think there are lessons for international actors in Myanmar that can be taken from this practice of Nalemu? Izzy and I would like to think so. And based on our research, we would argue that it, there is. I mean, number one, what we hope for is much more research is done before an aid program is drafted up with some kind of theory of change. You know, because this is my experience when I've worked with organizations, the theory of change is really abstract and removed from the local context. You're like, how is this going to change anything? So I know that there are pressures. The cycle of funding is very worrying. I mean, everybody's talked about this. You know, the fact you apply for funding and you have to show results in a year or two is crazy. So I know that the structural factors drive a lot of this fast-paced aid or development. But it's not okay in Myanmar because we simply don't have the literature that we have for other countries. So you can't take what you've learned from, let's say, Africa or Latin America and say, oh, well, you know, there's also poverty and informal settlements. Let's use this method. I think a lot more research needs to be done so that we are aware of the potential downfalls and the long-term consequences. The reason that I chose the word hidden in plain sight and social infrastructure is that I do see how it is the foundation. It is infrastructure. It's not just random decisions to work with each other. It creates a basis upon which for future action. And so if international aid wants to come in, wouldn't it be possible to support that infrastructure rather than tearing it apart? Yeah, that's right. I think context really matters and particularly so in this case. I think that's a great point on which to end. Thank you very much, Jade, for joining us on SEAC Stories. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.